Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is supported by SKP Creative, a full-service agency using traditional and digital marketing strategies. The team at SKP Creative develops data-driven communication strategies to help your business grow and thrive, and they're currently accepting new clients. Visit skpcreative.com today to learn more. That's SKP Creative. Make it happen. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Canyon Rim Consulting online at canyonrimconsulting.com, to Jeff Barra State Farm online at jeffbarra.com, and to Mariner Wealth Advisors online at marinerwealthadvisors.com. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com and get ready for our September-October 2023 issue. It's coming up. It's at the printer right now. It'll be out in just a few days. I'm excited about this one. It's the biggest one we've ever had. Today's guest is George Jackson. George is starting his second season as the music director of the Amarillo Symphony, and in fact, is leading the symphony during its 100th season, which just opened over the weekend at Hodgetown. George is a resident of London. You'll hear that with his accent. But he's an acclaimed conductor who travels all over Europe to work with symphony orchestras from Paris to Zurich. And one of the things that has gotten my attention is that he has said multiple times how highly regarded are both the Amarillo Symphony itself as well as the Globe News Center for the Performing Arts, where they play. And that's not just in Texas or the United States, but around the world. And so with the centenary season underway, I wanted to hear from George his perspective on Amarillo and our cultural scene, on the history of the symphony itself, about his career background, and a lot more. So here's George Jackson. George Jackson, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Well, I, uh, I know that uh, we've spoken in the past. I know you listened to the show. I know why you're here in Amarillo, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, because that's what I do. So what brought you to this area in the first place? I'm the music director of the Amarillo Symphony. Okay. And you were named last season exactly. to that position. That's correct. Yeah. So the, the symphony did a search season, uh, which was essentially 2021 to 2022. Right. And then named the music director in the summer of 2022, which is now a year ago. Okay. So I've spent the first year uh, already doing the job. Um, and now we go into our centenary celebrations, which is the 100th anniversary of the symphony, which is quite an exciting and big responsibility to take on so early in my tenure here. Yeah, so we you know, we, we knew that the previous director, Giacomo, uh, was was leaving, and so that gave them sort of time to prepare. Yeah. Um, Tell me like about that search process, just because I've never really talked to anybody, anyone about that, but yeah. how did Amarillo Symphony land on your radar, and what was the process of, of applying for the job or putting your name in the hat, or how, did, how does that work? Well, with Amarillo Symphony, it's a well-known orchestra. Um, I was lucky enough to do a lot of my training in the United States, so I knew a lot of the orchestras that a young conductor would would look to join. Mm -hmm. um, you know, often we spend our time in this sort of, you might call it musical adolescence. We finish studying. We're not quite sure what our next step is, but of course we're looking for a community or we're looking for an orchestra that wants a young conductor. 
wants somebody who's who's essentially doing this job for the first time or experimenting a little bit with with what it is to run a symphony. And so the Amarillo Symphony was always on my radar. Um, I knew the orchestra as a sort of uh, contemporary music commissioning type institution. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots and lots of new pieces that the orchestra has commissioned. I think any orchestra that's 100 years old, naturally, it's going to have a reputation throughout the industry. And so I knew that this was a, a symphony to take very, very seriously. Um, and of course, getting to know the symphony led me to getting to know the community. And that's really when I realized that the reason that there is a symphony, and, and it has been here for such a long time, is simply the fact that this community supports its symphony so strongly. And that's a gift for a music director because I don't think I need to make the argument to anybody that the symphony is a great thing. Yeah, people you're not trying that. to justify its existence. No, people know that. And, and often my colleagues you know, across the world, the biggest challenge they have is, you know, how do I convince a community that, let's say, doesn't traditionally go to a symphony mm-hmm. that they should support a symphony and then that's what they should do with their Friday, Saturday nights? Um, that already happens in Amarillo. And so it's much more about working out what direction mm-hmm. we should go in rather than that we should exist at all. And so, you know, existentially, that's quite a nice position to be in as a music director and quite unusual. Tell me more about the Amarillo Symphony being a place that tends to have younger uh, directors. Because now that you mentioned that, like I think back the last two or three, and that is true. Is there a progression for people who do what you do? I mean, do do you want to like retire with the London Philharmonic mm. or, or like some yeah. of the, the major world symphonies, but these smaller and established ones, like that's a good place to, to learn the craft or to gain that experience, that sort of thing. I think with a younger music director, especially somebody who's recently finished studying or has recently been working with other musicians across the world, I think an orchestra will get a perspective into what's coming up in the future because for example, the way we choose a lot of our soloists in Amarillo is, you know, we look at the various contacts we have across the world and think, who's the next big thing, but not quite there yet. Right. Because I love the idea. If you look at the history of the symphony, we have a very, well, a hundred year old tradition of, of hiring fantastic soloists just before they're well known. And I think a younger music director has an idea of who those people might be. And so all of our soloists for the next few seasons, including this season, you know, they're very famous, but they're about to be more famous. Interesting. And hopefully what I'd like to cultivate is a loyalty so that when so-and-so is famous in five years, they might find time in their schedule to come back to Amarillo. Hmm. And I think that's important because you can really cultivate a, an exciting art scene using that method. Tell me about your background. Uh, I, I know that you found your way into being a musical director, mm-hmm. conducting orchestras, sort of uh, a different path than many have. So, so tell me... Sort of where you started. Well, I'm not from a, a traditional classical music background at all. Um, my parents are actors. Um, they did a lot of theatre work in London and radio, TV. And so I was always in that kind of strange creative side of things. Um, I expressed an interest in playing the piano as a as a kid, and I practiced never. Mm-hmm. So within about six months, my parents just said, well, we're not going to pay for lessons if you don't practice, which I regret because I really wish I could play the piano. But I stopped that very quickly. And then I was interested in playing the violin. And I started violin lessons around age, I think it was about seven or eight, and really enjoyed it, but not with any desire to pursue it later on. Um, what I really was interested in was playing in a band. Hmm. Um, I played the guitar. I kind of taught myself guitar. I played the drums. There are all sorts of videos of me as a kid 
um, surrounded with saucepans in the kitchen really? and chopsticks playing the drums. And I just had this kind of crazy interest in, I suppose it was percussion and making noise, which my parents loved, I'm sure. Um, I remember, for example, you know those pedal trash cans? Right. I always thought that they were like hi-hats, yeah. you know, in the drum kit. So, you know, age four or five, I, that was the hi-hat, and then the saucepans were everything yeah, they else. They operate pretty similar to yeah, a hi-hat. Yeah, the same, same thing. So I did a lot of that as a kid, and and then later on, you know, as a teenager, I joined a kind of a, a metal band as a drummer, and mainly because they had nobody in the band, so they needed a drummer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I joined and then wrote songs, played the guitar, and that really was my musical experience, playing in bands until I was about 16 or 17. And then... I remember going to a party as a 16-year-old with a very good friend of mine um, who, from school who was a violinist and still is a violinist. And it was like one of those situations where suddenly you're socializing with people not from your own school. And so you get to meet people from outside. And, you know, I was like, well, where are all these people from? And he was like, they're all in the youth symphony. Hmm. And that's how I became interested in playing in a symphony because I realized that actually through music, you've got this amazing social life. And so I joined this youth symphony in my local hometown in West London. And we did tours in the summer. We went to Austria. We went to the Czech Republic. Uh, we toured within the UK. We did concerts, you know, every kind of semester of being at school. And I sort of, by accident, got really interested in in symphonies and, and I suppose, classical music. And it all just came from that idea of, you know, in a way, a symphony orchestra is just a big band. It's not It's sure. not different from anything else. So I just loved that and really enjoyed that. And that's really how I then got to take it more seriously as I got into my kind of late teenage years. But then take it more seriously did mean you went through the traditional, I guess, training and education that someone in your position might go through. I did. I, I actually went to the equivalent of what you might call a liberal arts college, uh, which was Trinity College in Dublin, where I studied musicology, which is really just the general study of the history of music, mm-hmm. theory, analysis. And while I was a student, I started conducting a chorus. And that was my sort of first job, really. And, you know, it was a very, very modest kind of salary, pocket money as a student, you know, beer money, yeah. used to call it. And that was, that was my kind of first job. And what was great is that we would have one rehearsal, and then we'd perform at the Evensong services uh, within the college. And so it was very fast rehearsal performance, and that was weekly. Hmm. Um, And I did that for about two years. And I thought, first of all, I realized, because, you know, at the beginning of doing something like conducting, there's this sort of unconscious incompetence thing. You have no idea that you're terrible (laughs) at what you do. (laughs) And it's what we all go through at the beginning of playing a musical instrument, you know, we're, it's, it's a nice place to be in because you kind of enjoy doing it and you don't think too much. And then the more you do it, you, you start to realize, you know, consciously, oh, I'm not good at this. This is hard. I need to get better. And that was the moment I realized that if I wanted to pursue this and take it seriously, then I would have to study properly hmm. and do this. So at that point, I auditioned and went to Vienna where I studied conducting, which became my major. And I spent five years studying conducting in Vienna. So since you have played multiple instruments, you've performed in different settings. Mm -hmm. What is it about conducting that, that maybe drew you to make it a career as opposed to continuing to play the violin Mm -hmm. in that sort of setting or, you know, the rock band thing as a drummer, like, like why, what is it about conducting itself that captured you? Well, first of all, I don't have the discipline to be a violinist or to be a pianist or to play an instrument in the way that 
my colleagues in the symphony and colleagues across the world, you know, they practice for hours and hours and hours on, on tiny details, scales, arpeggios, mm-hmm. technical exercises. I could never do that. I don't have that kind of disciplined commitment to something that's so technical. Um, but what I think I do have, and I realized it quickly, was a combination of being really quite introverted. You know, I'm very happy to spend time on my own. I enjoy studying. I enjoy kind of exploring new things in a very solitary way, but mixed with wanting to be sociable, right. wanting to meet new people, which you could argue is somewhat extroverted. And it's sort of a mix between those two things, which I think actually the role of conductor suits perfectly because you know you can't be so extroverted that you don't appreciate that there's a lot of studying that goes into doing the job but also you can't be somebody who just knows how to study at home yeah you have to be able to go in front of an orchestra of you know potentially a hundred people and not be intimidated by the fact that you're in a, a public role and so I always found that that those skills I felt really matched you know I think I look back now and I think well it's not that I wanted to be a conductor you know, basically I was a conductor, all of the skills and the ingredients that you need to do that job, somehow I had. And so of all the musical things I could have done, that suited me the best. I am always interested, uh, you know, you, you talked about the extroverted side of things, the being in public or in front of people. Uh, conducting does have a performance element, and it's a unique one because in, in one way you're performing for your orchestra at least you're guiding them in a very visible way your back is to the audience but like sitting in the audience of a symphony performance you end up watching the conductor because conductors have different styles some are more flamboyant it's a very active sort of thing do you feel like there's a performance a musical performance aspect of what you do as opposed to just you're you're driving the bus yeah i've always compared the role to being like a coach or a referee or an umpire in the sense that you're not playing, you're not making a sound. You know, if you're a referee in a soccer game, you're not touching the ball mm-hmm. necessarily, but you're... I appreciate you it. said soccer. Yeah, I did. yes, exactly. It's taken, taken at least a year of yeah. practice to get that right. Um, but it's it's interesting because actually, you, you know, you, you have a job of motivating other performers. And I think the way that I see the job is that, and it could be the Youth Symphony, it could be the, the Amarillo Symphony, it could be any orchestra across the world... You know, my only job is to make sure that all of the people I work with can do their best job. Mm. And it's managerial, you know, it's it's a motivating job, it's managerial, but then to some extent it is a performance. But it's a performance in the sense that I'll do what I have to do to make sure everybody's doing their best. Okay. Um, whether that comes across flamboyantly or not flamboyant or whether it's a, a performance or not, you know, it, I try to make it honest and it, it is okay. a representation of of what I think the musicians in front of me need to do their best. It's for the musicians, though. It's not for the audience that's watching your back and no, exactly. paying attention to the way you point and, no, and wave yeah. a baton. Okay. Yeah, I, I find that if, you, if you're motivated by what the audience expect from you visually, mm-hmm. it won't help the musicians. And so that's, that's my priority. Okay, so I, I want to talk about a, a couple of different things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what you've discovered about Amarillo uh, second. But first, tell me about the symphony itself coming in, you know, as someone on year 99 of its existence. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you discover in in terms of maybe the, the culture, the personality, the talent level? I mean, what, what did you find once you got the job and you arrived here? The thing I love the most about 
Amarillo Symphony is that there's a real curiosity and a hunger to to get better, to develop, to cultivate a different sound. And I noticed it when I was here for the the two kind of audition week concerts right. I did. I noticed it that you know we rehearse basically four nights a week before our weekend concert, and you know Wednesday night was always our three hour rehearsal, so slightly longer than our usual two and a half hour. Um, and we get to the end of Wednesday, quarter to 10 at night, people have been busy all day, we're in a rehearsal. And, you know, usually as a conductor, you pick up your antennae, see the mood of the room, you know, oh, can we go home now? You know, we've had mm-hmm. enough. Starting to lose them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's the end of the shift kind of feeling. And actually quarter to 10 um, on a Wednesday night in the Amarillo Symphony, people are still attentive and interested and curious and wanting to work and you know, often as a conductor, you have to almost apologize that you're keeping them there until the end of the rehearsal because, you know, you want to be efficient and get in and get out and do a good concert. People are really interested in asking questions and, and listening to what's going on. And not many orchestras have that within their kind of DNA as, a, as an organization. So for me, the fact that the orchestra wants to improve and wants to work in a particular direction is half of the battle because that's not to be taken for granted at all. I want to give people a sense of, of your job because you are only here with this symphony, you know, for a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. every month or so once you're in season, you're spending the rest of your career doing similar things Mm -hmm. with other orchestras as a guest conductor throughout Europe. Uh, You're traveling all the time. I've always wondered like being in that position, you're in a position to compare cities and orchestras with each other, hemispheres, you know, yeah. continents, all those sorts of things. Um, and, and last time we talked, you talked about sort of how that gives you a good perspective on Amarillo, having worked with orchestras in other places. And I wonder mm. if you could talk about that. Well, I think, you know, I'm lucky enough to be reasonably in demand as a guest conductor across the world. Um, you know, I trained in Austria. I lived in Germany. My first job was in Paris. I still visit those countries as a guest. You know, I have different relationships with orchestras there. And of course, I work at home in the UK as well. I think really, in a way, the job's the same. But I think being a music director, I have a long-term responsibility. You know, my job is to think about the orchestra in three to four years, Mm -hmm. five years. Um, I also am in charge of programming in collaboration with Larry Lang, who's our executive director. Um, What are we going to play in two years? Who are we going to invite? When I go as a guest conductor, um, generally speaking, they'll tell you what they'd like you to conduct. You know, we've booked this soloist, we're going to do this concerto, would you like to suggest a symphony or what would you like to do? Um, But basically, you know, you show up on a Sunday afternoon, you rehearse, you know, you meet them for the first time on Monday, and by Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you do a concert and then you leave the city. You have no community responsibility. Maybe if you're lucky, you might meet some people from the community that you're working in. But basically, you you come in, you experience the concert hall, you experience the orchestra, and you leave. And maybe they invite you to come back again, and you develop a relationship over the years. But in a way, you you have a single responsibility towards just simply doing a good concert with that organization that week. Um, and of course, with Amarillo, half of the job is as much about Amarillo. Sure. You know, it's, it's not called the Amarillo Symphony for nothing. <laughs> and it's about the community and thinking, you know, how how can we shape the orchestra to fulfill, you know, we're a mirror of, of this community. Okay. And so if we weren't doing the things that the community might want from its orchestra, we'll have a problem. 
And I think that that's the sort of perspective that I will never have when I guest conduct, which is also completely expected and, right. and totally fine. Since you are so involved in the programming side of things, and, and this being the 100th season of the symphony, tell me, tell me about the thought process leading into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're coming in, it's your second year. That's a lot of responsibility to be here for a milestone and to have the opportunity to sort of plan a roadmap. I mean, these are the symphonies we're going to do. These are, yeah. you know, the, the, the different performances. Here's who we're going to schedule. How did you think about that? Was, was there a strategy to say, okay, we have to do something really special this year? We have to do something that covers 100 years of performance? How did you think about that? Well, I'm of the opinion that if you happen to come and see the symphony at the Globe News Center by chance for the first time, we can't afford to put on a bad show a less than quality show because very likely if you come for the first time, I mean, it's like going to a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant for the first time, you have a bad meal, you'll never go again. And you'll tell people it was a bad meal. First impressions are a big deal. Exactly. And so I'm very conscious of the fact that, and this is not just for the centenary, but for the future, every concert has to be special and has to be of a high quality. So, but also at the same time, I've looked at the season once we started really planning and thought, right, does this fulfill all the different, parts of this community Um, and it's hard because it's such a diverse community and you know that's part of my research into this incredible place is you know who is here what do they want I mean I love talking to people who have nothing to do with the symphony to try and find out what they might be interested in you know so for example we've chosen to do uh, a big celebraciones concert in October which is a, a Hispanic themed concert simply because it's such a big part of this community and I don't see that represented at Globe News and with the symphony. And so that's part of our efforts to use the centenary to open up to different parts of, of the society here. Um, but also at the same time, I want to make sure that we're hosting some of the world's best musicians because I think that Amarillo deserves to have a symphony that rivals top cities across this country, across the world. So we have, for example, Mahan Esfahani, who's a a very famous Iranian-American harpsichordist. He's coming to play with us in January. Uh, We have Sarah Hershkovitz, who is a really interesting, uh, traditional, classically trained opera singer, but she's also interested in bluegrass and has a bluegrass band. She plays bluegrass and she's going to sing a a very beautiful piece by Samuel Barber, which is a a traditional classical piece combined with later on some bluegrass. And you think actually that's the way to try and find people who are are new. Um, We're joined by Randall King for Mm -hmm. our Hodgetown concert. Um, We also have, uh, we're continuing that in our September, the the first Masterworks concert that we have coming up in September. Um, We're playing Copeland's Rodeo, which is a ballet, you know, about life on a ranch. So we have hoedown and all this kind of traditional bluegrass fiddling type stuff happening within the orchestra, um, as well as playing something like uh, Rhapsody in Blue uh, by George Gershwin, um, where Michelle Kahn is joining us, one of the top pianists um, who's traveling around the world playing this kind of repertoire. So we really are a stage that I think we can be proud of. And I think part of planning the centenary was, you know, we rather than thinking, you know, we should be looking at orchestras of a similar size city and be rivaling them in some way. No, actually, I'm looking at big cities, even, you know, Fort Worth Symphony, for example, Dallas Symphony. What kind of repertoire are they playing? How can we follow that through and how can we make sure that, if you're in Amarillo, you don't have to go four hours, five hours right. down the road to hear world-class symphonic music. We can offer that here. Which is why, you know, 
somebody started the symphony Which in is 1923. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. One of the things you said to me in the past was that you think of a symphony performance as another form of musical entertainment, mm. which I, I think a lot of people might, you know, it, when we think of musical entertainment, we think about, you know, a, a band playing at a bar or a traditional rock concert or, or something like that. And the symphony maybe has a more highbrow, higher cultural, um, maybe reputation. Mm-hmm. And what I've appreciated about you, and I, and I wonder if this comes from your background as a drummer in a rock band, mm. um, whether that mindset, you know, is is that unique within uh, the, the realm of what you do? Or are all symphonies thinking, we're going to put on a show, mm-hmm. the music we're going to play is this kind of music, but we're musical entertainers and we want to give a good show to the audience? I think... What people are realizing as they ex- as they kind of research, you know, what people want to do with their spare time, essentially, is it's experience based. It's not simply buy a ticket to come and hear Brahms' first symphony and then go home and that's great. Um, it's about coming to the concert hall. It's about having dinner before. It's about having a glass of wine in the interval. It's about what you do after. You know, we have these fantastic, um, we have the Beethoven Society, which is a kind of um, higher level donor society within the orchestra. And we have a reception for them after every concert. And that kind of experience is as much part of the symphony as sitting in the chair and watching the performance. And so we're trying to kind of cultivate the feeling of, you know, again, like when you go to see a, a rock band play in a venue, it's not just about the music, it's everything that surrounds it. It's about the people that you meet at that particular venue. And I think what symphonies across the world are slowly realizing is that, you know, we can't just simply be doing the same thing again and again and again, um, you know, particularly in a context where we do, you know, we have an aging population across the world. Sure. Um, but also the average age of our audience can't, keep growing older we have to at least maintain the average age if not bring it down right and i hear all these amazing stories from you know particularly some members of the the older members of the audience who have been coming here since they were kids they talk about being in the audience when they were six seven eight years old and that's the secret that's why they're still coming to the symphony (laughs) and so if we don't have that younger generation coming to the symphony now then we won't be celebrating 200 years and that's really a big priority for us at the moment I'd like to hear your perspective on the Globe News Center. Um, I, I feel like it's one of those venues that because it is a part of the cultural fabric of Amarillo, we tend to take for granted. And you're coming at it from an outsider perspective. Maybe you're, you're less of an outsider now, mm-hmm. um, a year into it. But tell me about it as a performance venue and, and maybe what makes it special, what kind of reputation it has. Well, I think the important thing about having a music director who spends half their time in town, half their time out of town, is that I definitely come in from an outside perspective as well. And I think that's important because a lot of orchestras, they want somebody who's just 100% of the time there. And I think that's quite dangerous because you, you get blinded. I'm amazed every time I come back to Amarillo because I go to the Globe News and I look around and I just think, well, this is a world-class concert hall. Mm. I think the important thing about Globe News is, first of all, the acoustics are phenomenal, but also what Globe News represents is that it's a a privately funded community wish project. It came from an incredible desire amongst the community to have this concert hall. And so what it represents is Amarillo is a community that if we want something, we will privately make it happen. 
and of course, you know, and then it, it now it's, it's with the city. But I think the important thing is that that's where the Globe News came from. And that's, again, that's why we have an orchestra that's 100 years old, because if people want it, then it will exist. I think also what's really important to remember with, with the Globe News Centre as well is that the acoustics are absolutely phenomenal. Um, and it's just, it's such a, a pleasure to have a situation where, you know, we rehearse in, in our own hall. We, we do every rehearsal from Monday night until our concerts on the same stage right. in Globe News. That's unusual. Hmm. Um, particularly uh, in London, for example, if you're doing a concert or if you're doing an opera, you'll go to a random church somewhere in East London, do your first rehearsal, then maybe two weeks later you'll do your next rehearsal in another place, in a studio somewhere in West London, and then you'll go and do the next rehearsal, Central London, whatever it is. Um, and so you're actually adapting all the time for different acoustics. Because you're hearing it as a performer, as, as a, yeah. playing an instrument. It's not sounding exactly the same no. each time. Exactly. And and if you look at orchestras across the world, um, the Concertgebouw Orchestra, the Berlin Philharmonic, the Vienna Philharmonic, um, there is much orchestras that reflect the acoustic they work in um you know they've cultivated a sound because of the incredible places that they play hmm. of course it's great when they go on tour but to hear those orchestras in their own home that's part of the deal and so we have the opportunity here to actually cultivate a sound that reflects the globe news center from day one of rehearsals which is incredibly unusual we we, we don't have to fight any other institutions that want access to globe news because for the concert week it's ours all yeah. the way through and that's incredibly unique situation Okay, so the, the last thing I want to ask to close out this section is just on your experience of Amarillo. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who is not a full-time resident, but when you're here, mm -hmm. like you're very definitely here and, mm -hmm. and you're uh, interacting in a lot of different ways with the city. Um, maybe even apart from the symphony aspect, like what have you found about this community and, mm -hmm. and, and how can you describe it to, to people who live here full-time and have forever? Um, what's your perspective on it? What I've noticed in Amarillo is that people have this incredibly humble approach to how they think about Amarillo. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because we bring in these fantastic musicians from across the world and people are very, when they talk to them, they're very, you know, so why did you come to, you know, little old Amarillo? What do you do? And, but actually what I'm trying to convince people constantly is, you know, you, you have the most amazing setup here and it's very sweet that people kind of almost downplay what there is but this is a, a world-class scenario you know and and actually across the arts here you know you don't need to live in a big city mm -hmm. because this is world quality stuff happening. like your guests so. are not humbling themselves to come play in amarillo no. it's something that is desirable it's for desirable many yeah it's desirable and and i think that the more i travel to different orchestras across the world and look at their setups and look at their concert halls and look at their kind of culture of working you realize actually this it increases my trust and faith in what this community has because it really is incomparable, you know. And as as a music director, I mean, this is the first my first music director position. This is the first time I've done a job like this, and you know, and I'm spoiled because it's just a perfect setup. You know, the relationship between the community. Uh, I think also the you know, this is a friendly country, particularly mm -hmm. coming from from Europe. This is a friendly country, but this is a friendly part of that country. And that's also incredible because people talk and people are interested, and, and I like that. This episode of Hey Morello is also supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's taken care of my kids' teeth since they first got their grown-up teeth. 
In fact, my son Owen has just returned to Texas A&M for the fall semester, and he went to Shimon Dental to get a cleaning before he left. Dr. Sauer is a national speaker on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. You can learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or visit shimondental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Okay, I'm back with George Jackson. George, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and it's a partner with Google's Arts and Culture Project, where you can see several Native American artwork elements and artifacts online, as well as digital reproductions of Southwestern art, all of which are part of Panhandle Plains' permanent collection. You can learn more and hit those links at panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, I, I know that you're still relatively new to this area, but when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Well, I think it's, it's no secret that there's incredible growth happening. Some people talk about almost exponential growth in mm-hmm. terms of population. I think one of the things about the artistic world here is that it's so difficult because we're competing a lot. You know, a Saturday night, it's very difficult to have two significant events on on Saturday night. If the opera's on, we can't have a symphony concert. Um, if there's something on in Starlight, we can't have something mm-hmm. on in the Globe. It, those things are really clear. And so what I really hope is 10 years from now that actually we can put on as many artistic events as we want and not have to worry that we'll get the audience because that cultivation of our of our public has right. developed alongside the city. And I think that will be a wonderful thing in 10 years. Increasing the size of the audience will minimize that pot that you're trying to draw from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I just think as well, you know, that that's one of the things of a, of a big city like London, New York. A, a symphony can just go, well, we're going to do this on that night. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to really think about something major that's happening the same night. And that's a challenge because as we try and expand, um, for example, we're trying to add a film music concert hmm. um, towards the end of the season. But we're also very conscious of the fact that we don't want to, you know, be working together with all the other arts institutions across across the town. And so we're we're also conscious of not wanting to put an event on that takes away right. from the other. So really, if if in 10 years we have a scenario where everybody can keep doing what they're doing without that worry of taking away from the other, then that's a healthy part of the growth. And at the same time, that collaboration is is unique. I mean, that, that mm. you're not seeing each other as competitors, but as you're all doing the same thing, you're all performing, mm-hmm. um, introducing, you know, culture to the city. Mm. Uh, and so you do work together. And there's yeah. a lot of crossover with, with the different talent that's available here. Yeah, exactly. Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Well, what I'm learning is that everywhere in terms of driving takes 7 to 11 minutes. Right. And I've learned that if there's a string of red lights that can double. It's true. So I think less red lights. And it's funny because actually it's very unique to, to England that we have this obsession with roundabouts. I love the roundabouts. You love the roundabouts. Yeah. And we have a few in a Amarillo few. Yeah. and we, people don't know what to do with them. Yeah. It's, it, and it's the same because, you know, for example, France and Germany went through a period about 20 years ago of, of because obviously roundabouts are cheap. Mm-hmm. There's no electricity required. There's nothing like that. Yeah. The traffic's um, always moving. The traffic's moving. You're never if, just sitting there. Yeah, if it's two o'clock in the morning, you don't need to wait or you don't need to go through. So I think that there's too many <laughs> red, red lights. Somehow happens whenever I'm driving somewhere for an emergency appointment, something yeah. like that. But um, I think a couple of roundabouts <laughs> would help with that. 
I, I appreciate that perspective, although it is a, a very British one. I mean, it's very British. Yeah. Okay, what does this area not have enough of? Well, the basic thing for me is people on the street. When I first arrived, um, it, was a, it was a Sunday, was my first day in Amarillo, January 2022, just before meeting the orchestra on the following Monday. And I went for a really long walk. I was staying on Polk Street, mm -hmm. downtown. The Barfield? Um, nope. I wish. <laughs> I was staying at the courtyard. Okay. And I went for a really, really long walk um, all the way down Harrison and then kind of turned around and came back down Van Buren. And I remember just thinking, this is the most incredible walk ever. You know, about an hour and a half walking all the way down, coming back. In fact, I, I live close to that area, so I fell in love with it on that particular day. But I didn't meet anybody else the whole hmm. time. And I remember thinking, well, where is everyone? And I have the same feeling as well. It's the Potter County Courthouse, that square, right. very near the Globe News. And so I often walk around that square before a concert or in re before rehearsals or after rehearsals. And I still never meet anybody else. And there are, there are beautiful benches in that square. There's lots of space to sit and relax. Maybe it's too hot. Maybe it's too windy. But I just, I love the idea of, of a bit more of a kind of active life in that square, yeah. for example, or just in the street. But that's my problem <laughs> and that, well but, but that is a very um maybe a very texas thing mm -hmm. a very american thing in some communities is that we are a car culture yeah and that means people aren't accustomed to walking places yeah. and i've i've noticed when i travel you know i think nothing of walking um you know a mile mm. in london to go to a, a venue or get some groceries yeah but like I live a mile from the grocery store. Yeah. I've never walked to it from it. my no, house. I know. Um, and so it's, it's something about the culture that, yeah. uh, that is different. And also, I think my first two trips to Amarillo as a guest conductor, I didn't have a car. Mm -hmm. So I did walk everywhere. Right. I walked from, from where I was staying to all the restaurants, all the, all the coffee places nearby, uh, which will be many of my answers actually in this, in this section, but also walking to Globe News. Of course, now... I'm also the same. I don't walk anywhere. Right. <laughs> I get in the car and drive. Um, but I do, I, I think there are such beautiful places to walk in Amarillo and neighborhoods to discover. And, and it's just, I feel like it's me on my own, which is also very yep. nice. Okay. Other than your own, what's another local arts organization you appreciate? So I'm very lucky to live very close to Amarillo College, mm -hmm. but I really love um, the Museum of Art. Yes. First of all, I think I spend a lot of time when I'm not doing music. I tend to not do musical things in my spare time. So I prefer going to the theater. I prefer going to see art exhibitions. And so I've spent a lot of you know, very happy kind of afternoons at that particular museum. But also one of the things I love, which does tie in with another organization, is that they're opposite the road from the Amarillo Opera, mm -hmm. from their offices, the Amarillo Opera House, as it's called. And I kind of think sometimes, you know, how many communities of this size has have an arts museum opposite an opera house down the road from a symphony and from a concert hall. And so just that little area, I've, I find it all fascinating, but particularly I love the fact that there's an art museum about two blocks away from where right. I live. <laughs> it's very Plus it's unique. free and, and it's, it's free. always changing its exhibits. Or yeah, yeah. Okay, what's your favorite local coffee or tea shop? And I, I changed it to tea for you. Yeah, Not, I, I, I didn't want to that. assume yeah. that you were just a coffee person. It's funny though, because I... I do drink tea, but I only drink tea at home, made by myself at home in London. I, I've never drunk tea on the road, and I don't know why. I still can't work it out. But so I always drink coffee, and I have to say it's, of, of course, Palace, but specifically the one downtown. Hmm. I remember the first time 
uh, I remember it was the Monday morning before we rehearsed and they were so nice. I was so like blown away and, and the barista introduced herself and asked my name. And in fact, I went there this morning, same barista knew my name, mm-hmm. knows which coffee order I have. I mean, that's a very unique thing. And I also noticed that, you know, I first came here in January, 2022 for my first concert, came back in April and the same barista said, oh, hi, George, how are you? Nice to see you. And I thought, I've been going to the same places in London for 10 years and they have no idea who I am. And so that, I really like that. It's very personal, but also um, I'm quite simple when it comes to coffee. Um, It's generally black coffee, usually a double espresso, and also, I'm often jet lagged when I'm here. So yeah, sure. one of those in the you're, morning. You're is, one of those customers. Yeah, then, right? exactly, exactly. Okay, what's your favorite local restaurant? I've thought about this very long and hard, and it has to be a Mexican restaurant because that's one of the few areas of cuisine that does not exist outside. Well, even outside Texas, but sure. certainly the UK, London. It does. There is some attempt at something similar, but nothing like what they have. Here, so I will have to say Braceros downtown. Okay, it became my canteen because, as I mentioned before, I didn't have a car for my first few trips. So everything I ate or drank, I had to walk to, and so I used to walk right across the street to Braceros. And I think they thought I was crazy because I had two meals a day from there, and often brought it back to the hotel, or I'd go there. And I just think it's a wonderful environment. And actually, one of the things I've noticed um, about Braceros is that our rehearsals tend to finish at 9.30, sometimes 10 o'clock. And it's one of the few restaurants close to Globe News that will still take a restaurant order Hmm. um, right after that time. So first of all, it's perfect for the musicians, but also it's very relaxed. The minute they see a a table of of members of the symphony coming in at sort of 9.45 on a Tuesday night, they relax, they stay open, they serve us, you know, they, we have a margarita. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful place to go. And, um, and any other restaurants in that area, 9.45 is a good time to stop serving because sure. you will get musicians in. Interesting. <laughs> sure. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. What's your favorite building in Amarillo? Again, I've thought about this long and, long and hard to decide, but I think one of the buildings I love is on the drive that I take to the grocery store. And it's the Westminster Presbyterian Church. Okay. You yeah. know the one I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's a park. Right. It's, uh, right next to Austin Park. Austin it's across from Austin Middle School That's it, in yeah. the Wolfland neighborhood. Yeah. And it's funny because I drove past it going towards the grocery store and didn't notice it and then came back the same way. And it's just, it's got everything that you could imagine in a building, but very strange combinations, which I think work amazingly. So you've got this very red brick mm-hmm. style. And red brick is very Victorian right. England. So it really reminds me of being in Liverpool or in Bristol or somewhere at home. It's also got this very unusual spire, mm-hmm. which makes me think I'm in like a movie, which is always exciting. And then at the same time, there are these amazing columns. And then these Georgian, the tops of the roofs are kind of semicircular. And uh, when I lived in Dublin, I spent four years living in Dublin. All the kind of architecture around the old part of the city is Georgian. And so almost every door has this kind of semicircle above the door. And so just looking at that building, it's very like, it reminds me of home. It really, hmm. really speaks to me a lot, you know. That's good to know. Yeah. And that is a, a very quintessential Amarillo mid-century kind of church yeah. design. Yeah, I think it's from the 1950s. I imagine it is, yeah. 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 You'll find a very similar design at Paramount Baptist Church Okay. Uh, on Western, which okay. I think was also built in the late 50s. Right. Um, a little bit bigger, but yeah. yeah. That's that's interesting to know. Okay, final question. When was the last time you visited Paladuro Canyon? I visited in January, 
mainly because I was amazed that it was sunny in January. Mm-hmm. It was hotter than any summer that we've ever had in England, for sure. But also, we've, as part of our centenary, we're commissioning two or three world premieres by you know famous composers across the world, and almost all of them are interested in the landscape of Palo Duro, um, and also the region surrounding it. Um, and so every time I'm here, I'm, I'm really conscious of going to visit, and I'm, I get lazy because things get busy when I'm here. So January was the last time, and um, I'm hoping to go again in September, because what I love is that it changes so much. Um, the first time I went was spring, was kind of April, and so now it's probably time to see it in autumn, fall. Right. Yeah, yeah the, the fall in the canyon is a really great time of year uh, once you get past the heat of the summer Mm. okay well george that concludes the eight straight questions i like to close by asking my guests to endorse something so what's one thing you would like locals to know about or Mm -hmm. to experience i have two strange answers which i hope i'm allowed to do go for it the first answer simply is the kiwi fruits of market street (laughs) okay i love that's my breakfast everywhere kiwi fruit it doesn't matter where in the world that's coffee kiwi fruit but what's interesting is that the whole world they're the best and i don't know why i don't know where they're from you've traveled all over europe yeah i don't know where they're from i don't know where they're imported from or whether they're grown here or but they're the most amazing thing in the world so next time you're in market street kiwi fruits okay that Um, is interesting to know so that but that's the simple answer The, the more complicated answer was um was really about the founding of the symphony so we're talking 1923, 1924. And it seems like the 20s was this incredible decade mm-hmm. in Amarillo's history. And it relates to the, the Potter County Library, which was also founded in the early 1920s. And I noticed this interesting mix between the symphony was founded entirely by women, amateur female string players who came together because they wanted to play music in their spare time. And I didn't realize this until recently. The library exactly at that place the building's still there was also founded by a group of women right who wanted to read who wanted to endorse literature and you kind of think that's a very progressive thing in the history of amarillo this idea that these artistic institutions were all founded and and started by women which i think is a really interesting part of this culture i think that is true i don't know if if there's a larger lesson to to be learned about who Amarillo was and, mm-hmm. and what was happening in the 1920s. That is something we're exploring in the uh, the upcoming issue of Brick and Elm and, and thinking about the symphony. But I, I do love that, that it is women that have had so much influence uh, into these ongoing institutions, you know. Um, all right, George, I appreciate that. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to George for the interview. You can learn more about the Amarillo Symphony and its current season, the 100th season, at amarillosymphony.org. Thanks also to episode sponsors Shim and Dental, SKP Creative, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the podcast. And thanks, of course, to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 315. My name is Jason Boyad, and I'll see you next week.